It's always tough to find a spot to jump in on Ayla Brooke and the Soundman because I'd rather just let the song play. We'd rather just let the album play. A good Wednesday to you, friends. It's September 8th, and this episode of Real Talk is presented by our very good friends at Bitcoin Well, planet Earth's first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see Caleb at Bitcoin Well today. Got a couple questions, want to check in. They help me with my Bitcoin wallet because, quite frankly, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Bitcoin wallet? There's a Bitcoin wallet. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a whole thing. There is so much to learn about. And there's like real life, like actual tangible stuff you hold when it comes to Bitcoin that holds your Bitcoin that you can't hold. Do you get what I'm saying? No. Not at all. (laughs) I don't either. That's why I need Bitcoin well. It's why you need them too. Questions answered. Safe, convenient, secure, buying, selling, all of them. You can be found under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Big show today. Looking forward to a, a conversation coming up. This is, uh, as a matter of fact, tough subject matter. I don't mean tough, difficult. Like it's, we're not talking about, uh, you know, childhood hunger, or we're not talking about something that that sort of pains the heart. Um, uh, hey, what, what what about? It's kind of a bit of a tough conversation yesterday, but what a wonderful conversation with Julie Rohr, a good friend of the show who joined us. And I know that many of you have downloaded that podcast, have watched it on YouTube and have been sharing the clip of it on social media. N- not a tough conversation like that today, but but our lead off discussion today uh and, and it's going to be in just a few minutes with dr jennifer jackson and author jim brophy about abuse aimed at healthcare workers it's a tough conversation because it's it's a conversation that 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 is actually bringing out the worst in me it's a scenario that's bringing out the worst in me as a matter of fact let me see if i can track this down there was a tweet that i liked and I'm kind of wondering if some people might might come at me for this saying, you know, you shouldn't like a tweet like that. Ryan is it, it was, it was uh, you know, well, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about when I read it. But but uh, we, we referenced Jen, the feisty librarian yesterday. She's a great follow. Give her a follow on Twitter at feisty underscore waters. And she tweeted and uh, there's going to be some adult words here. So earmuffs on the kids just for a second, because I want to do the tweet justice. I'm a pretty nonviolent person. But I swear to fucking God, if I ever encounter an asshole anti-vaxxer yelling at a patient or a doctor or anyone else trying to access a hospital, I will punch them in the neck so hard that it breaks my hand and hopefully their neck, too. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to like that tweet because I don't want to quite come out and say that myself. But I swear if I, you know, and, and of course, she says I'm a nonviolent person. And then what we'll say here is that we don't ever support um, punching anybody in the neck or the face or, or the body or anywhere else. Um, but if I was going to punch somebody in the neck so hard that it would break my hand and maybe break their neck, too, it would probably be an asshole anti-vaxxer demonstrating outside a hospital uh, and uh, without apologies, because that's kind of where and, and people say, wow, you're bringing some hostile energy like four or five minutes into the show today, Jaspo. But the fact of the matter is, I think that that's where a lot of people are at right now. We lack the patience uh, because everyone's tapped out. Everyone, everyone is exhausted. Everyone's not quite. Can you say at the end of the rope or is that is that something we can say anymore? We don't know where the where these euphemisms and phrases come from. I have this great book up on our bookshelf at home 
It says, why do we say that? And it's a great dive into some of the language that we use at the end of our rope. Do we even know what that means? Is it like a tug of war reference? Maybe. I don't know if healthcare workers are at the end of their rope yet because and, and we take them for granted. Let's be honest, because they just keep showing up and they just keep delivering. But I think if you're like me and there may be varying stages of this feeling, there may be varying depths of the angst or the anger that people feel. But I have zero patience for people that are abusing healthcare workers in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't know how this has become part of our normal. Saw somebody yesterday saying, what is what has become of us now demonstrating and yelling at healthcare workers outside hospitals? You, you, you don't have to like the prime minister, but throwing rocks, throwing rocks at the leader of the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau, out on the campaign trail. Really? Like, wh- where are we at? Why are we here? And how did we get here? So I'm looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Jennifer Jackson and, and Jim Brophy. Jim's the author of Code White. We're going to find out what Code White means in, in just a second. A little bit later on in the show, as part of our ongoing federal election coverage, we've been making you a promise. And actually, this is something that, that that's really sort of been fulfilling to us is a mandate to explore as many different angles as we possibly can on the federal election. So you'll be hearing different perspectives from across the country, from different people representing different communities or different demographics. And we want to make sure that our that our election coverage is as all encompassing or as depth driven as possible. And that includes today indigenous perspectives on the federal election. The grand chief of the Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta, Grand Chief Arthur Noski, will make his return uh, to Real Talk. And we're also going to be checking in with Nigan Sinclair, an Ashnabi writer whose work has appeared. You may have seen him on Power and Politics, uh, read his work uh, in, in a number of different national, international publications, uh, currently on sabbatical uh, from the University of Manitoba. We're grateful that those two will join us. That's coming up in about, you know, 20 minutes or so. We'll take you out to Jasper today, courtesy of our friends at Tourism Jasper with My Jasper Memories. I'm going to be getting a little bit personal today and showing you some family photos from our recent trip out there, including a video you're going to want to see of a Stanley Cup champion of a former National Hockey League captain Andrew Ference just nailing the happy Gilmore drive I caught it on video I was there I witnessed it it is an unbelievable highlight we'll be sharing that with you today and then in about an hour or so maybe an hour and 20 minutes we'll talk to Nick McCarthy from the Beechwood Cemetery as September 30th approaches we're just about three weeks away Uh, The National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, a really neat initiative. Uh, It's a mailbox of sorts at the National Cemetery of Canada. Not of sorts. It's a literal mailbox. Literally. It literally is a mailbox. (laughs) And Canadians are invited. Well, can you tee this up for us, Sarah? Basically, Canadians are being invited to share their thoughts or their personal experiences on, on reconciliation on residential schools. It's kind of a bit of an open mandate. In other words, what's on your heart should is what should go on paper, correct? Absolutely. And it's addressed to Dr. Bryce, who was the whistleblower for residential schools. I mean, he was the first medical officer for Canada. He was actually appointed by Johnny McDonald. Wow, the the architect of residential residential schools. schools. And so Dr. Bryce blew the whistle. He was silenced. um, But these letters are going to be, it's actually at his grave site where the mailbox is. Wow. So we'll be providing the address. And and, and of course, we can tweet that out and stuff. 
YouTube betcha. people that are going to be listening to this on the podcast. And then Cindy Blackstock will will uh, will be receiving these letters. She's been on the show before, of course, uh, a remarkable person, executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. And uh, and then we'll find out what they're going to do with these letters. I think it's a really neat initiative. We're going to get to some of your emails today to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We've got a ton of them. Uh, Jaylene, we're reading yours. Uh, I'm going to get to Ben Plays Drums. Uh, ben Plays Drums. His band played a gig recently, said, I've never been so uncomfortable in my life. Want to read that? And uh, Colin was in touch with us, too. A letter to the premier. He CC'd on this. We're getting a ton of correspondence. I know that, that yesterday a lot of people were surprised that Alberta didn't hear from its chief medical officer of health or its premier, 17 deaths, COVID related deaths, 17 of them over the weekend, more than a thousand new cases a day. I mean, these numbers are, uh, you know, appallingly familiar. Let's say it, this, it sort of feels Sam in a way like Groundhog Day. It feels like when we launched this show, uh, you remember like last November into December, January, and, and we were getting you to do all these graphics boards. You remember that? I mean, once you start getting into, you know, quadruple digits, once you start getting into thousand plus new cases a day, you get that feeling again, don't you? You do. And it's like, I don't want to say history's repeating themselves. And I do want to say that, you know, things are a little bit different now because there is just more vaccinated people out there in the ethos. But I mean, at the same time, it's just... It is appalling to me that we just keep like it's it's the we never learn. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the part that just grinds well, my there gears. Is, is, there's a different dynamic, yeah. like you said, though, is that before it, and, and we touched on this on the show yesterday. Before it was everybody uh, getting sick, or what I mean by that is that you know COVID did not discriminate, and now the fact of the matter is is that disproportionately the numbers of people that are that are hospitalized, people that are in the ICU, or people that are not vaccinated. Well, and I mean this this circles right back to our conversation with Julie yesterday. It, it just the these are preventable people for being in the ICU. Like the big difference between then and now is every one of these unvaccinated people that ends up in the ICU had the choice yeah. to go prevent this. or at least most of them. Well, yeah, we, exactly. You know, we'll recognize that some people are in positions and I don't want to kind of let me be honest with you and I'll make this commitment in, in, in the in the spirit of legitimate, informed, uh, reputable dialogue that I will not brush off the fact that some people cannot get vaccinated. That is a fact. And I do think that that's important to point out. So it's not simply the vaxxed you know, versus the unvaxxed. But generally speaking, Sam, you're right. There are a lot of people that could have made that choice. We'll continue to have these conversations. We call the show Real Talk for a reason. Also want to make a quick note. We, we, we briefly touched on, uh, you know, my one of my childhood heroes yesterday, Theron Flurry, who's just been kind of going sideways a little bit on social media as of late. And I tried to pick my comments carefully yesterday and show some respect and, and, and uh, at the same time, not pull punches where punches should be thrown and recognize just the, the lunacy of some of his his recent comments. Well, Brandon University has released a statement today. Uh, Theron Flurry was the recipient of an honorary degree from Brandon University. And uh, and uh, he, he was sort of showing that off over the weekend too. people are going, uh, Theo, you know, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I have a degree in this. And someone's like, what? Someone said, well, you have an honorary degree. He goes, well, that's the same thing. And it's from Brandon University. So Brandon University this morning is like, uh, so we'll get into that statement in just a little bit. And 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 I want to read the same. I'm going to read it in its entirety because I think they wrote it in the same spirit. I mean, there's obviously a higher profile uh, with bigger implications, um, you know, a bit of a bit of a release than mine was yesterday. I was just a I'm just a hockey fan that idolized the guy. 
You know, he's what, five, six, seven years older than me, something like that. I remember him coming in as a rookie, you know, mid cup run in 89 for the Flames. And I mean, everybody remembers Theo Fleury. They've used that celebration, him sliding on his knees, pumping his hands. I mean, that, that, that's been used on Hockey Night in Canada openers for years. The guy endeared himself to hockey fans everywhere. If you were an Oilers fan, you absolutely hated the guy. If you were a Flames fan, you adored the guy. Uh, but he's, you know, as as is oftentimes the case with celebrities uh, and most especially with a presence on social media, you get a peek behind the curtain and you see kind of what makes them tick. And I know that it's concerned uh, the folks at Brandon University. So we'll get into that statement in, in just a little bit. We're going to talk about abuse and healthcare workers in one second. I want to remind you that this show happens because we have the support of amazing partners like the team at Westworld Computers. And right now, their Back to the Future sale is on. You can check out more at westworld.ca. When you buy a new Mac with Apple Care Plus at Westworld, they're going to give you up to $100 to spend on awesome accessories. If an iPad Pro, like the one I'm using, with Apple Care Plus is on your shopping list, $50 in instant savings on accessories when you buy in their store or online at westworld.ca. And don't forget, you can save hundreds of bucks when you trade up from your current Mac or iPad. You can learn all the details at westworld.ca. Also wanted to let you know how excited my wife Carrie and I are to be hosting a tailgate party coming up this weekend on Saturday, September 11th. We don't get to do this a lot, Carrie and I working together, hosting stuff together. We're really excited to meet a bunch of you. It's going to be a nice distanced event. We're obviously going to be outside, but you have a chance. The first 75 of you, by the way, that book private appointments, a chance to tour these beautiful show homes built by Daytona, Jamin, Landmark, and Pace Setter. You can learn more online at deroche.community or you can follow me on Twitter and you'll see the sign-up link. Here's why you want to sign up. Not just because Friesen Brothers is going to be there with food and St. Albert Dodge is going to be there with the brand new Rams and we're going to have live music and a whole ton of fun for the whole family, but... The first 75 of you that book appointments to view these show homes, we're going to give each of you a four pack of tickets to go hit the football game later that night. Edmonton Elks, Calgary Stampeders, September 11th, four tickets in the family fun zone to the first 75 people that show up. You can find the sign up and I'll retweet that. Sarah, maybe you could even retweet it from the Real Talk RJ account. Make sure you follow that account on Twitter as well. It's the Villages at DeRoche Villages. Looking forward to this uh, exciting event coming up on September 11th. Let's get into this. I, I don't have to tell you that there are protests. I mean, if I say across the country, I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, but they've been popping up. They've been popping up like zits on someone's back. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely disgusting demonstrations of anti-vax ideology and angst aimed at healthcare workers. Joining us this morning, Dr. Jennifer Jackson is, is an RN and an assistant professor in the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Calgary. Uh, she's got expertise in supporting nurses, improving health systems. Uh, she's currently focusing on community-based harm reduction services, and she's the co-author of a, a new piece in Nursing Open we're going to take a look at. Jim Brophy also joining us, a health researcher. Uh, he's got a PhD in occupational Occupational and Environmental Health. Jim is the author of Code White. Uh, to the both of you, thanks for being here. Really appreciate your availability on, on Real Talk. Jim, why don't we start with you? What's a Code White? Well, a Code White, thank you, by the way, Ryan, for having us both on. Um, a Code White is a signal, if you will, in a hospital, in a medical facility that alerts uh, healthcare staff security that there is a violent incident uh, at play uh, going on. And it's used as a way of signaling that uh, 
the healthcare workers need support uh, and assistance. How common is a code white, uh, Jennifer? Is this, is this is this a phrase that every healthcare worker is aware of and knows about? Is this a commonly used phrase? Absolutely. Um, this is something that is almost a daily occurrence in the hospital. I would say the last time I was there, um, it was it was happening at least daily, and um, we know for um, for staff that work in hospitals, um, nurses face the most violence of any professional group. So nurses face more violence than police. Nurses face more violence than construction workers, any other group, you name it. Nurses have more dangerous incidents on their job. And I think that largely that's often overlooked because nursing is a majority female profession. And um, I mean, we have issues with addressing violence amongst women in society. And um, because the legacy of nursing is very female oriented, it kind of goes hand in hand with that. But um, when I worked clinically, like I've been kicked in the face. Um, I've gotten a concussion from a patient and, you know, all kinds of things. And I have had um, de-escalation training, um, nonviolent crisis intervention training and all kinds of things. And it's just the nature of the work we do is very, very difficult and it's not recognized. Well, I'd be curious to get both of your take on this. And, and, and I know, uh, Jennifer, when you say it's the nature of the work that you do, I know you're not saying that in a way that justifies the scenario at all. Uh, of course not. You know, but, it, it comes with the territory, but is it, it? But that doesn't mean it's not something that we need to address. And I, bo- both of you have done a ton of advocacy on this, uh, Jim, including your book. Uh, is is this the low watermark? What we're seeing right now? I mean, is is this is this scraping the bottom of the barrel? These these public demonstrations we're seeing outside hospitals, people targeting and abusing healthcare workers. Is this the worst you've ever seen it? Um. Well, I, I thought, by the way, that Jennifer summarized very well exactly the situation that healthcare workers are facing and have faced for some time. Um, I think this is just making more graphic um, the targeting of healthcare workers and the crisis of our healthcare system. Um, that you could have crowds demonstrating, stopping ambulances, assaulting healthcare workers, abusing, uh, you know, patients. Um, this is really showing that the public, what has become a reality for uh, healthcare workers. Um, in our research, we found, for instance, that violence had become so prevalent, so widespread and normalized that it was simply considered as part of the job. And this, we were wondering, well, why don't we know about this? Like you were mentioning the, the uh, demonstrations now which are very graphic and public, but we are occupational health researchers. Margaret Keith and I, we've been involved in this in these issues for 40 years, and we were shocked by what we were hearing. And of course, the other part of this is that you have a work culture that breeds uh, fear of reprisals, that healthcare workers are intimidated and threatened if they speak out publicly about what is happening to them in the work environment. So this has kept the public uh, in the dark. And that's, I think, one of the major reasons why we wrote this book and why we just completed three major uh, peer-reviewed studies on, the, on this issue and on, on the pandemic is because the public needs to know 
that what is happening to healthcare workers is a bellwether for the crisis within our healthcare system. And until we address these major issues, the, the, uh, the frustration that so many people in the public have toward the healthcare system will continue to fester and even get worse. Yeah, I don't think that either of you will be surprised to know that, that we've even heard stories uh, like firsthand from the horse's mouth from guests, um, healthcare professionals that have appeared on this show that have been recipients of abusive behavior based on their comments on this show alone, uh, let alone uh, more you know public or, or forums where they might be more accessible, you know, in real life, walking into work, walking into hospitals. Now, of course, there are many reasons why this would be an issue of great concern. And uh, Jim, you just teed this up nicely for us. Uh, Jennifer, I suppose one of them, of course, is a practical approach. It feels a little bit cold and callous for me to say this. I, I don't mean to suggest that we're not worried about the nurses in particular or the healthcare workers in particular, but with regards to the health of the system and sustainable delivery, this sounds to me like this could be really problematic. Absolutely. I mean, we are already, we have nurses who aren't able to work because of COVID, um, because of the physical and mental health knock-on effects of COVID. And so when you have people who are being threatened, um, being yelled at, you know, it becomes that much worse. And I think that it demonstrates a broader, like a lack of understanding of what healthcare professionals do and the risk that we um, incur as part of our work. And I think that I have seen violence in the hospital and, you know, it's never excusable or condonable, but there are times when I can understand, you know, if someone is under the influence or they have something that's affecting their brain chemistry, they don't know where they are, they feel very threatened, um, we need to do emergency medical things to support them. Um, you know, I can understand that person who's maybe experiencing delusions being being potentially violent. It's not okay, but it's understandable. The idea that there are people standing outside your workplace, potentially throwing things at you, screaming at you, when, you know, prior to this, we had folks that were coming out every night at seven o'clock to bang on pots and pans in support of healthcare workers. It's just completely unbelievable that there's been this kind of transition and it adds a whole other level of threat to the daily work that um, nurses and other healthcare professionals do. And um, I'm, I'm afraid for my colleagues. I, I see that they're already experiencing incredible amounts of, of burnout. And like burnout isn't even, I don't say that lightly. I mean like a very severe kind of physical and emotional exhaustion, um, which has been made worse by poor policy decisions that could have prevented some of these additional, you know, additional waves, additional ICU admissions. And then um, it really just reads like an extra um, kind of middle finger to the people who are trying to get us out of this. And, and, you know, we're all for political discussion and dissent and, you know, we shouldn't take things as status quo in society. But at the point where you're protesting a hospital, I really just have to question, like, what is going on? Yeah, that's putting it politely, uh, Jennifer, to say the least. Um, Dr. Jennifer Jackson, Dr. Jim Brophy, our guests here. So, so Jim, you talked to 
what you you spoke to like more than a hundred healthcare workers, right? In putting this book together, um, personal support workers, nurses, aides, porters, clerical workers, cleaners, uh, telling their firsthand accounts of of what you might describe as nightmarish experiences. I would imagine at the same time, these folks probably had some suggestions or some insight into how. Canadians could start to turn the tide here. And I know that people that hear this interview will be eager to know what they could do or what they could control. But I'd imagine there are systemic elements as well. Where do we need to start? Well, that's a great question. And I'm not sure (laughs) where to start because um, we did hear many, many, not only stories of abuse and violence, uh, sexual assault, uh, racial uh, abuse and assault, uh, you know, and, and as I think Jennifer mentioned, you know, 85 percent of, of the healthcare workers are women and you cannot help but see the parallel between violence against women in our society and what's happening in the healthcare system, including the way it, they are silenced and and uh, targeted uh, and, you know, re- controlled in terms of speaking out publicly about about this issue. But the healthcare workers that we talked to and that wide range of people told us about, you know, a whole series of of uh, of improvements and, and steps that could be taken. Of course, everyone recognized that the underfunding of our system, the understaffing of our system, the lack of of uh, input that healthcare workers have, the horrible hierarchy that exists within a healthcare system that keeps the voices of those and nurses and 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 PSWs and orderlies and cleaners and so on from ever participating in what's going on. And yet, if you listen to them, they have enormous suggestions, enormous numbers of suggestions that would prevent violence. And, um, you know, we've known for decades that our system is horribly underfunded. You know, uh, Ontario has a lower ratio of uh, nurses to patients than Mexico does. And it's been classic because we've had 20 or 30 years more of real neoliberal policy uh, from the federal and the provincial government that both, uh, you know, Alberta, Ontario, Ottawa have turned a blind eye to this issue. They've allowed the system to continue to function in a way that provides an atmosphere that creates an atmosphere where harm and uh, and violence can occur. Uh, Jennifer, you you co-authored a, a research article that was released just a few weeks ago, 25th of August, a nursing open licensed practical nurses perceptions of their work environments and their intention to stay a cross sectional study of four practice settings. Essentially, you're taking a look at let me know if I'm dumbing it down too much, but basically whether or not LPNs want to still show up for work like that's basically it. Right. The the, the impact that this is having on people's shorter and longer term Uh, sustainability or desire to keep showing up. I mean, if I'm a parent or a guidance counselor and I'm listening to this interview and and I'm listening to a a young man or a young woman that sits there and says, I've always dreamed of a career in nursing, I'm going to sit there and say, I'm not sure that that's a good call right now. But I don't imagine you're going to try to dissuade people out of nursing because we need some of the most skilled and talented and empathetic people on planet Earth into that profession. So how do you sort this out? What would you say to those those young people, those young potential professionals, the parents, the guidance counselors and the like. Um, I've never regretted being a nurse a day in my life. It is the ultimate 
um, opportunity to make a difference in the world and support people, particularly at their most vulnerable. And also it's, it's an act of problem solving and social justice in motion. And, and I think that's incredibly valuable. When we start addressing these issues, we do need to, we can have kind of a hyper-local approach, but also look at the big picture. So the big picture is still that for women in every single country of the world, the most dangerous place for them to be is their own homes. And as long as there are endemic cultures of violence against women, we're going to see knock-on effects of that onto healthcare professionals and nurses. And I know that there are lots of male nurses and non-binary folks, other gender identities that are integral in our healthcare system. But the legacy of being a predominantly female profession is, is very, very relevant in this conversation. So I think we need to be talking about that level as well um, in both my research and you know research done in this area for the last 20 years. We know that having adequate staffing and good leadership are integral to nurses staying at the current place where they work and in the profession more broadly. So, I mean, we need to be looking at aggressive measures to improve staffing, um, approaching bargaining, asking nurses to take a pay cut after um, COVID, which is probably the worst thing that has happened in modern nursing in terms of the impact on staff and, and for all people who work in healthcare. And, um, you know, leading into bargaining saying we want to reduce your pay. Um, it's also not lost on me that the first place for cuts sort of post-pandemic, even though we're not post-pandemic, um, was a predominantly female profession. Uh, that, that matters here. And that is an issue because we know that these currents um, are still flowing very much under our policy discussions. The idea is that, well, you know, nurses just kind of bring around some pills and pat people on the head and it's the doctor that does the thinking and the real work. And, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Nurses are often the first people who raise the alarm when someone is starting to deteriorate. And they are the ones who mobilize the healthcare team to provide that emergency assistance. And so, you know, valuing women and how we think about women and historically female professions does matter. I think there's also questions of, of funding. I know that healthcare can't be just a black hole that we shovel money into, but if we're really strategic about these resources in terms of saying, how are we going to, um, ensure that we have adequate staffing? Can we provide, you know, a leadership academy for all managers in healthcare um, so that they are making sure that they have adequate resources? How can we, you know, give people the most autonomy possible in terms of scheduling their shifts, arranging around childcare, providing a variety of options? And how can we look at the way um, nursing and healthcare professionals are respected in society? And uh, I think that people always have a right to protest, but we really need to also say, you know, if you have a relative that's one of those people doing it, maybe say like a hospital, really, <laughs> really a hospital. Um, I think we need to, you know, encourage people to um, 
to take other kinds of actions that aren't endangering the safety of essential workers. So also, if you know a nurse on like a micro level, phone them and tell them that you appreciate them and that you're sorry that they're going through this and maybe bring over a casserole because everybody has has really had a hard time. And it's important that those individual connections are just as significant as those that we're approaching on a societal level. Uh, Jennifer, I'm so glad you said that. Just that, I mean, people taking five to 50 seconds out of their day to fire off a quick text uh, to a healthcare worker or in particular here, we're talking about nurses to somebody they know, whether it's a respiratory tech or, or a paramedic or an orderly or whomever. Uh, I think it'd just be so huge. I'm not surprised. I and mean, we've got a wonderfully diverse audience. I'm not surprised that we have nurses and retired nurses that are watching this live that are chiming in on our live chat. AB says every time we need around the clock security uh, for an aggressive patient in our on our unit, uh, AB says the hoops we have to go through with management to get it approved. Uh, Gina says, I know many nurses who are planning on walking away. It's just it's just they don't see it as worth it. Michelle says, who could have imagined a few years ago that healthcare workers would be under attack from the very people whose lives they're working 16 hours a day to save? Michelle says it's like we're in the twilight zone. I'm with Michelle on that. Somebody said the other day, it's unbelievable. It's anti-vaxxers outside the hospitals and it's anti-vaxxers in the hospitals. Uh, really tough to wrap your mind around that. Some interesting comments here. Ken says, I've got four nurses in my family, three of them in one family, a mom and her two daughters. They never complain about their job. They never complain about the stress they've taken on or the sadness that they deal with on a daily basis. Ken says, my respect is immeasurable. Uh, we're hearing from other nurses that are chiming in. I don't have time to read them all. But, uh, you know, Terry touched on the fact that Alberta is now bringing nurses in from out of province to to just address basic staffing levels. <laughs> Dr. Jackson, I see what you just did with your face for people that are listening on the podcast that don't have the benefit of seeing that that was worth a thousand words. Uh, where Where's your head at on that? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I have studied with some of the leading researchers in the world on this one, and it's really frustrating to see that this is government policy because this is just such the wrong thing to do. So um, the UK introduced, I spent a lot of time there and I know their healthcare system very well. Uh, the UK introduced measures where they would pay agency nurses, which is what Alberta Health Services is proposing, um, to pay agency nurses 50 to $75 an hour to come in and fill gaps. And we do need mechanisms to fill gaps in our systems. But by leaning into having agency nursing coming, agency nurses coming um, in more than an occasional capacity when it's looking at filling a substantial proportion of our um, staffing needs, that's very problematic because then you have one nurse who is working who might be making $35 an hour and the nurse next to them doing exactly the same job is making $75 an hour where is the incentive to stay at that hospital and not join the agency yourself um, then what ends up happening is that you can have a unit that is staffed largely by agency folks and so you lose that local knowledge so the idea of like 
how was Mrs. Jackson two days ago? I don't know. I'm here from an agency and I don't know, you know, how things were going two days ago. Um, where's that piece of equipment for that rare and specialized thing that we only do a couple of times a year? Um, there's no, you know, local knowledge and local expertise to know how to handle those situations. So agency staff can have a role for nurses that like a lot of flexibility and um, want to, you know, try working in different places. So that in itself is not a bad thing, but the idea that we're going to um, offer reductions or freeze in nursing pay for the vast majority of Alberta nurses, but bring in other staff at $75 an hour just doesn't make any sense. And we've seen, you know, other West, Western healthcare systems, it's ended up creating these really dangerous dynamics within the wards when you have a lot of agency staff that are very capable, but don't have that local knowledge and that local expertise. So instead, um, a place to start would not be cutting nursing pay. Um, we need to be supporting nursing salaries so that there's enough incentive that people want to take those permanent jobs and attend work at the same place every day and to have a culture at that workplace that draws people in rather than pushes them out. So um, I think that it's a bit of a short-sighted approach to try and fill gaps with agency staff when what we need to be doing is improving the workplace conditions and um, paying nurses at rates that they deserve. Uh, before Can I, I think, just say, of Brian, course, yeah. I just, I just want to say that in a certain way, of course, I agree with everything that Jennifer has said. Uh, unfortunately, nurses are, are voting with their feet now and they're walking away from the, the trauma, the burnout, uh, the crisis that they faced through the pandemic. But I think that this bringing in agency nurses is actually makes a lot of sense if your intention is to erode and privatize the healthcare system, this is exactly what is going on on a thousand levels every day. Um, you know, and I, I just want to mention before we leave that you know the the uh, the elephant in the room here is what's happened in Canada uh, with our long-term care uh, facilities, where the violence is even more pronounced, and where you know in polls that were done on uh, you know, nurses and personal support workers, almost 90% of them experience violence, harassment, uh, sexual and racial abuse on a weekly basis. When, when we did our study, the title of our study was Breaking Point. This is before the pandemic. And so you know, when it's reported in the Lancet that we have a national disgrace, uh, you know, a national disgrace because of what's happened in our long-term care facilities. It shouldn't have been a surprise because the conditions were such that workers were literally thinking, how can I get out of here? People with, you know, 20, 20, 25 years were, were quitting uh, of seniority in, in, in these, uh, in these uh, positions because they had given up a sense that they can care for people. And at the same time, the majority of the long-term care facilities are in private hands, for profit hands. So it's in, in the face of our public health system that we all as Canadians, you know, cherish. So I think this is one of the things we need to be mindful of when we're talking about the steps that governments are taking. They are not protecting our public health care system. They are not protecting the healthcare workers in those uh, facilities. 
They are allowing, allowing them to erode and go to private hands. And this is creating and fueling the crisis that we're now in. Uh, Dr. Brophy, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, if people are just hearing this interview and, and aren't as familiar with Real Talk as, as maybe others, I want to remind people that back on August 5th, we had a really powerful conversation about long-term care in Canada with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. You can find that uh, either via our podcast or, of course, on YouTube as well. That's the August 5th show. So let me ask you this in closing, both of you, I'd like you to chime in on this because I know that we're about what? Uh, Dr. Jackson, about, I think, nine days away, September 17th is a planned day of action. I don't know if uh, I mean, day of action, if, if that's sort of a, you know, a euphemism for a strike, if that's what that is. Uh, you know, I've always sort of had mixed feelings about strikes. Uh, you know, sometimes you sort of say, well, you know, these workers have got to a point where they've either been locked out or they're they've walked, uh, whether it's wildcat or not uh, a, a scenario where they're trying to grab the public's attention. They want to force the hand of the employer or they feel like they're not being treated fairly around the boardroom or whatever the case may be. But strikes aren't always positive experiences, right? Like, you, you know, you don't always win public favor when you strike. And you sort of wonder if if it's, you know, to a point where it's it's regrettable or unfortunate that nurses or other healthcare workers have to be in this position. Where are your thoughts at as September 17th approaches? Jennifer, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, I fully support nurses taking job action because I think they have every right to stand up for themselves. And at this point, um, if not a strike now, then when? Um, and, you know, I should say clearly that I'm not a member of the union that is proposing the strike, nor am I. I'm a neutral party on this. I'm not affiliated with Alberta Health Services either. But to go through the experiences that nurses have been through, and, you know, there there have been significant numbers of people trying to advocate, whether it's through campaigns of writing to your MLAs, um, whether it's through po professional pressure. Um, you know, nurses are very engaged politically at a national level and a provincial level. Um, the Canadian Nurses Association has put out its calls to action for the coming election. So, so we are doing the things um, that would hopefully fill that space. And when that's not working and the issues have escalated to the point where, um, people are, are feeling fearful of even walking into their jobs. I mean, I look at the situation and say kind of what else is there? Um, I certainly hope a strike can be avoided. It's not a good thing for people in hospitals. It's not a good experience for the people who are striking. But um, I think that some of those salary proposals that were put in place uh, during the negotiations are frankly just disrespectful and offensive to say that towards, you know, after three waves, we're going to cut your wages because um, balancing the budget is that significant a priority. I just really um, understand people's frustrations. And I would ask everybody watching to say, you know what, use your political power. We have municipal elections and federal elections coming up. Um, nurses are having a day of action on September the 17th. Stand with them. Contact your um, elected officials and say, I'm not okay with this. And, you know, in addition to reaching out to nurses or other healthcare professionals that you know yourself, um, you know, take that tweeting rage that you were referring to earlier in the program and channel that into things that, um, that can help 
hopefully make some changes. Um, you know, we had a federal party leader say that he was okay with privatization and there was scope for that within our healthcare system. And, you know, we need to take note of these things and vote in response to that. I, I don't want to even I mean, I'm not going to put this. I want to put this out in the universe, Jim, but it, but I mean, it's obvious, you know, when we're talking about a, a day of action, when we're talking about strike action at the same time, we're talking about demonstrations uh, outside hospitals. It just to me, you get the feeling that there's a bit of a powder keg potential there. And it makes me nervous, quite frankly. Uh, where's your head at on it? Well, I, I think there is a, a power keg uh, out there. Uh, I think it's inside the hospitals. I mean, we've had healthcare workers uh, living through this unbelievable pandemic, risking their lives every day to go to work. Let's not forget that they were denied the most basic levels of protection for for many months. In fact, in Ontario, it took you know going into court uh, by the nurses' union, by the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions to even get the proper respirators that the SARS previous SARS commission had demanded, recommended that the government be stockpiling. So, I mean, you have situations now inside these hospitals where the level of demoralization, the, 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 the trauma, uh, the, the emotional uh, anxiety that people are facing, it needs to be bought out in the public because let's not forget that they're not allowed to speak out about this. Why, what, when you keep this, completely, you know, under closed wraps, that you don't allow people to have a voice, that you mute their experience, it's going to show up because the resistance to this kind of conditions it just requires they take bold action. And, and frankly, for me, I applaud them. Mm. We need a wake up call about what is happening in our healthcare system. And if the nurses are going to lead that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I know that the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions has been very much on, on, on this as well. This has got to be a very big bullhorn that's out to the public that our healthcare system is in crisis. And if we don't address this, the consequences will be more privatization, more violence, more hospital shutdowns, more long-term care scandals. We have to come to grips with what's in front of us. And the choices is not just that we have to put, you know, we have to continue to go in debt or so on. I mean, I hate to put it this way, but what about all the subsidies that we give the fossil fuel industry or the auto industry or the banking industry? Why aren't we taxing the people that have the wealth, that have the resources so that we can have a public health care system that really works? And we deserve one. That's what our parents fought for. That's what our grandparents fought for. And it's too precious for any of us to allow this kind of thing to, to, to go on. So I applaud the nurses. I wish them well. I will stand with them virtually. But I, I think whatever action they're taking, and I don't think it's particularly a strike they're talking, although they may be. I think it's more of a day of action where they'll be out on the street corners, out in front of the hospitals, not necessarily on strike, but calling public attention. And so, and my very last point, if you're going to call and say, you know, something to nurses, ask them if they or, or healthcare workers, ask them if they have any experience with violence. And I dare say you will not find one that can't tell you a story about this. And we should say to them, this is not acceptable. We do not support this. Dr. Jim Brophy's book is Code White. 
uh, his Ph.D. in occupational and environmental health, Dr. Jennifer Jackson, an RN and an assistant professor in the faculty of nursing at the University of Calgary. I'm grateful for both of your insights this morning. Really invaluable. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Jennifer. And the live chat. Kimberly was another uh, nurse. Kimberly, thank you. Gina, thank you. Thanks to everybody that's been chiming in, talking about your personal experiences. Kimberly says, you know, people say as a healthcare worker, you chose your profession. Abuse comes with the territory. Kimberly says, no, I chose to help others at vulnerable points in their lives. I didn't choose to be a punching bag, which is well said. Man, there's a lot of people with I mean, I mean, this is, you know, Chad says this is called an information pick. I should be careful. I, I don't want to be irresponsible and start using the word strike. Strike is a supercharged word. It's a day of action. Uh, and that's coming up on September 17th. So we'll see what that is. I don't I'm just like. Am, am I wrong to put that out into the universe? Is that, I'm, I'm like nervous right now. You know, we see and I know that these are maybe, you know, the, the gravel throwing incident at, at Justin Trudeau. People might say, well, that's an isolated incident. But these protests that are popping up in cities across Canada outside hospitals. Sometimes you, even, you hear words come out of your mouth and you're like. Are we seriously talking about this? Are we seriously talking about protests outside freaking hospitals? And I just, I mean, obviously there will be a police presence when and wherever this happens, but I, I would just hate to see clashes. Um, and worst case scenario, I mean, you know. Thank a healthcare worker today is what I'm getting at. That's the most important point. Sarah's keeping an eye on our hashtag, a great way to chime in both during our live show or if you're joining us later in the day. Thanks to those of you that download, that subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcasts or you find us on YouTube. Of course, Real Talk RJ, our hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power. The team at Park Power at parkpower.ca has a great incentive for you to bring over your electricity, natural gas, and internet. The promo code 2021-REALTALK gets you 70 bucks off your first bill. And here's the deal. They're also a company that takes 10% of their profits on the electricity side and puts them right back into the nonprofits and the communities where their employees live and work. One of the coolest parts about it, if you've been on their website, you know you have an opportunity to designate where you'd like the charitable donation to go. They've got a big, long list of charities that qualify. You can find them online at parkpower.ca. Also wanted to remind you that the team at Local Waste is gearing up for another edition of Trash Talk. That's coming up this Friday on the show. You can send us your emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Keep it local with local waste, construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection. Uh, You can find them doing business in Alberta and Saskatchewan, again, online at localwaste.ca. And a big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping. They're bringing outdoor spaces to life and have been doing so for more than 20 years. Mike and his team. This is the thing. They've they've got these teams that they can dispatch that do these big, beautiful jobs. But when you deal with the company, you're getting that one-on-one attention where every detail is covered from the design all the way through to the construction. They don't quit until you're satisfied. Mike told me personally, I've shared it with you before. He's most proud of their problem solving. Whether you have that one nasty spot in the yard that has a drainage issue or, or that one spot in the garden that's just not happening, they've got great ideas on how you can transform that outdoor space and truly bring it to life with Eden Landscaping. We'll be talking to Grand Chief Arthur Noski and Nigon Sinclair 
Uh, in just a moment, we're going to get indigenous perspectives on the federal election. I'm looking forward to that conversation, but but wanted to briefly touch on uh, somewhat of a remarkable statement uh, released this morning from Brandon University. Uh, Theron Florimer, Theron Fleury, a, a former National Hockey League All-Star, of course, a Stanley Cup champion with the Calgary Flames, an Olympic gold medalist, um, ha- has a, a pretty prominent online presence. And on Twitter over the past number of days has been pushing out uh, nothing shy of conspiracy theories, suggesting as one example that vaccine passports would allow pedophiles to know where your kids are at all times. It certainly earned Mr. Flurry some criticism. He responded to one in particular by noting that he's the recipient of a degree, a degree from Brandon University, of course, an honorary degree. It prompted the university uh, yesterday afternoon to release this, quote, Brandon University steadfast in our support of academic freedom, academic inquiry, and robust public debate around issues of consequence. These freedoms, however, must be balanced against responsibilities like honesty, integrity, and good faith. We're disappointed that honorary degree recipient Theo Fleury is increasingly not meeting that balance. In 2015, Brandon University presented Fleury with an honorary doctorate, recognizing his significant contributions to combating child sexual abuse and for his efforts at that time to promote healing and recovery. Flurry, a survivor of sexual abuse in his youth, was one of those key voices exposing sexual predation in junior hockey, and he continues to, to deserve both praise and understanding for that role. We kind of touched on that yesterday here on the show. The statement goes on. More recently, Flurry's turned his voice to launching personal and political attacks and to the espousing of conspiracy theories. Over the weekend, he shared a reprehensible statement falsely linking vaccine passports to pedophilia, and he responded to criticism by brandishing a screenshot highlighting several of his past awards, including his honorary degree from BU, obviously prompting the statement. They say honorary degrees are awarded by Brandon University to recognize an individual's significant achievements or contributions. They are not academic credentials. Flurry's significant contributions to exposing the rot in junior hockey and to supporting the survivors, the other survivors of child sexual abuse through recovery continue to deserve respect. It's understandable that he may struggle to trust authority and that he may see dark motives in others' actions. His recent statements, however, go beyond reasonable distrust and are a stain on his legacy, which saddens us. It's pretty remarkable for a university to be writing this, a stain on his legacy. It saddens us. I mean, this is with regards to what are typically benign statements. This is far from benign. It goes on to read one of the tragedies of abuse. And we alluded to this yesterday. One of the tragedies of abuse is how it perpetuates itself across generations. We call on Flurry to recognize that he's now a person in a position of authority, And to recognize that his actions as an authority put him in a place where he can cause harm to others. And we hope that he takes advantage of the resources at his disposal and seeks greater understanding of the science behind the pandemic and the essential public health role of vaccines. That from Brandon University, that statement released just yesterday, September 7th. They didn't rescind. They didn't pull it. They didn't pull the honorary doctorate, at least not yet. Which would have been, I think, quite a statement. I think it's I think that's really like the spirit of that, though, is really beautiful in that they're saying we're concerned 
This is not okay. We invite you, we, we ask you to please reconsider your comments. We're not going to pull the honorary doctorate yet. Yet. But, you know, red flag. Yeah, and this is, and, and that was kind of the balance I was trying to find yesterday where I said, like, listen, I, now it's different when you say I loved this guy. I mean, I'm, I, what I'm talking about is the adulation of a, of a hockey fan. It's, it's fleeting, it's surface. You know, you could you can cheer a player one year and the next year he's an overpaid bum. We know that sports fans are fickle. So I don't know that I ever loved Theron Fleury like I love my family. But I sure liked him a lot. I liked him as a hockey player. I grew up in Calgary. He's one of the greatest all time Calgary Flames. He's easily in the top five. But it's been difficult lately. It's been difficult to watch. And I found myself from time to time trying to extend the benefit of the doubt because you never know. This is a guy that's battled alcoholism. He's he's worn his heart on his sleeve. He's participated in, in, in a couple of books, um, in a theatrical production of his life that was touring the country just like two years ago. I mean, this is recent history. He's a guy that has earned a ton of public sympathy. His history with with that absolute monster, Graham James. You know, alongside Sheldon Kennedy and others, I mean, Theron Fleury has, has encountered so much trauma in his life. And so you don't want to come on. I didn't want to come on Real Talk yesterday nor today and say, you see, this guy's absolutely losing it. Start poking fun at him, making a joke. It's not funny at all. As a matter of fact, there's nothing funny, but it's tragic. And I thought it was pretty remarkable that Brian and I'm not surprised because Fleury was brandishing that like I have a doctorate from Brandon University. I have a degree. I can talk about this stuff. They're going. These are not academic credentials. I'm curious for your thoughts on this. You can send us an email anytime to talk at Ryan or of course, you know where to find us on Twitter. You can follow us at Real Talk RJ. And of course, you can also participate in the live chat. You know, I mean. You know, a lot of you were saying, like Hope says, this is certainly a warning to Flurry. If he keeps yapping, Brandon University will pull that honorary doctorate. If I know Flurry, and I don't know him well at all, I've interviewed him five or six times. We played hockey a couple times. I wouldn't say I know him, but I don't think he'd give a rip to have that honorary doctorate pulled if it meant that he felt he was being muzzled to prevent it from happening. If you watched him play hockey, you know how he approaches scenarios. I mean, this is a guy that was a foot shorter than everybody else and would just go into the corners and scrap anybody. And he just is wired a little bit differently because he probably had to be to survive, quite frankly. Lisa says there's there's absolutely right. She says there's nothing funny about this. It's serious and it's tragic. Terry says people who love him need to get him help. And I like this from Wigwith. This is a good insight. Who says, you know, it's it's kind of nice that Brandon University worded it like they did. It's 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 sort of almost like a friend as opposed to an attack. Says, but it's really sad. I know many think that they're finding legit stuff online when they're sharing things like that, like a vaccine passport, giving pedophiles clues into where your kids are at. Like, you know, we dismiss these things and say, oh, why don't you tighten your tinfoil hat? But the fact of the matter is it resonates with some people. And oftentimes, these are the same people. I mean, there's this common thread, isn't it? These are the people that are outside hospitals. These are the people yelling at nurses and doctors. It's the same crew. It's the same people throwing gravel at the prime minister. It's the same people pulling all these kinds of stunts. We'll continue to talk about it as part of our mandate. Let's let's move on here. It's it's a federal election looms. All right. Fewer than two weeks uh, on September 20th. Canadians will go to the polls 
And we've made a commitment to you to approach our coverage of this from as many different angles as possible today. I'm looking forward to a conversation with the Grand Chief of Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta, Grand Chief Arthur Noski, who's agreed to join us to provide an Indigenous perspective on this. Grand Chief, thanks for your patience as we got things lined up technically behind the scenes. It's great to have you back on Real Talk. How have you been holding up? Uh, so far, so good, Ryan. Thank you. What's on your mind forefront? I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Treaty 8. I want to note right out of the gates in no way, shape or form. Are we presenting your perspective as the perspective of every indigenous person across this country? Obviously, there are different priorities. There are different perspectives based on geography, circumstance and otherwise. But with regards to you personally, uh, what are some of the most important election issues, ones that you're prioritizing or keeping an eye on? I think in the area for us as Treaty 8, uh, Ryan, it's the, I guess it's the party platforms, right? I know uh, elections come and go, basically, uh, parliament changes, uh, the electorate changes, but uh, for us in this federal election, you know, the timing, we can't, uh, couldn't agree to the timing, basically, as to the issues that were surfacing in relation to the IRS uh, stuff, right? But in saying that, I believe that the priority is the, what are the changes basically in the party platforms? I'm questioning that, you know, that the gov- next parliament will address the issues of First Nations that are, you know, across Canada. There was a, a release uh, out of the Sovereign Nations of, of Treaty 8. I want to ask you about this. And, and for the benefit of our audience members that didn't have a chance to read it, I want to read just a portion from it. Uh, we, the Sovereign Nations of Treaty 8, call on federal leaders to provide a firm action plan outlining how indigenous issues will be addressed after the election. This election is acting as a distraction to the real issues facing indigenous peoples. We're tired of hearing the same rhetoric at every federal election. Party leaders attempt to solicit votes from indigenous peoples with promises that are never acted upon, much like the treaty promises. The government needs to stop making empty promises and legitimize our nationhood. It's pretty direct. Let's get into what that looks like. Where do you start? Well, again, it's going back to the, uh, again, the uh, election promises every time, right? So uh, the seriousness, I guess, I believe for us is, where is it on the party platform? Usually on a party platform, Indigenous nations is just a a one-liner. I will do this for Indigenous peoples. And that's the end of it. So, uh, you know, when a push comes to sub for uh, governments that are, well, I guess the parties that are in government, they revert back to the party platform. So in saying that, where are the changes on the party platforms that basically will bring that significant, you know, change in how indigenous issues are going to be addressed. And if it's not there, then, uh, you know, we'll expect only the same, I guess. Status quo for me, I guess, would be the outcome of whoever gets elected. So in saying that, and the purpose of that is the, uh, you know, I went to the uh, blinding late walk uh, last uh, 12 kilometers to Parliament Hill with Chief Byrne from Chip Prairie. And uh, there is a, you know, Caucasian people walking with us and asking two questions they asked was, where, where are the changes in the Indian Act that needs to happen basically for that, you know, the indigenous issues are front and center in uh, eliminating not only the poverty, poverty, but also the suppressive 
government policy. And the other question was, who do you want us to vote for? So basically my answer was, well, I'm not here to tell anybody in like uh, to tell them who to vote for. But uh, the significance for us will be looking at what are their party party platforms on addressing the indigenous issues that are front and center today. Okay, so I know you don't want to tell people who to vote for, but have you seen anything of substance, uh, anything that's catching your attention that you believe to be viable or meaningful or sincere in any of the party platforms? And if so, where are you finding it? No, not that I have, you know, with the party platforms, I haven't seen anything. Basically, you know, the, the issues front and center today are basically the economy and also the uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, and all the concern is the uh, in the healthcare where the cuts are happening, right? Uh, with the pandemic in full bloom, basically, again, the fourth wave coming on. Yes, there are. These are... Uh, front and center as to where the priority and where the issues need to happen or change or because it impacts everybody. But when it comes down to, you know, kind of like when the, I guess the prevailing storm had subsided a bit, where and how do we address uh, reconciliation and restitution for our people? Because as a sovereign people that entered into treaty, we did not give up the land. We agreed to share it with the settlers, and that is, I believe, all across Canada from Treaties 1 to 11. So we need the, again, when push comes to sub for the party that's in Parliament, they usually revert back to the party platform. So in order for us to see that they are serious about addressing the current issues with Indigenous peoples, we need that wording in a party platform, not just a one-liner, maybe a whole paragraph as to what their commitment is, is to, you know, uh, in bringing about change with our people. I, I agree with your assessment that there's a lot of talk about the economy, that there's, I mean, obviously talk of, of COVID-19. I'm not sure that there's been that focused of a discussion, though, when it comes to this campaign. If you look at what the general public's talking about, some bizarre diversions on things that are, quite frankly, meaningless, um, I'm talking about issues like abortion that in, in my mind, when that flares up, it just seems so disingenuous, oftentimes from the people flinging the mud and the people that are receiving it. I mean, two beaver is chiming in, says climate is the only issue. <laughs> Hawes says, hey, listen, if they're not talking about doing away with or let me say abolishing the Indian Act, then they ain't serious about indigenous issues, says Haas, in my humble opinion. W- would you concur? Is I mean, would you like to see something as bold as a definitive statement, we will abolish the Indian Act? I guess in saying that, like a, a commitment to abolishing the ones that are uh, suppressive and basically restrictive on First Nations. And, you know, right now, it, like I watch the news occasionally, and uh, it's uh, indigenous uh, candidates, basically they're, you know, uh, taking pictures with the indigenous candidates and, uh, you know, like, uh, oh, yeah, we're, we're doing it, uh, addressing indigenous issues and going forward. I guess to those indigenous candidates out there that I would question that. Basically, you know, if the party platform does not change in their position and how they're going to address the issues going forward, then what is your indigenousness in parliament going to do? 
right? Is it just basically, you know, bringing the knowledge and the experience or kind of keeping addressing the issues? Or can there be change, significant change outside party platform positioning? That'd be my question. Do you, I mean, I get this sense, I feel uh, it's it's been... How do I describe this this groundswell across the country? I mean, uh, you know, it started outside as if I need to tell you, Grand Chief, and you've been available on this show before for very candid and, and meaningful commentary. But but outside the, the former Kamloops Indian Residential School, these 215 unmarked graves, and then, of course, these heartbreaking uh, announcements, these numbers across the country in, in Kawasis First Nation and so many others. And the nation, I mean, this was right around Canada Day, right? And a lot of people grappled. We had our question of the week around it. You know, are you are you observing Canada Day? Are you not? I mean, there's a home, there's a house right by us that's flown a Canadian flag for years, and they're now flying a, a, a an orange silk outside their home. I mean, my my young boy, he just entered grade one, and, and, and we show up for the first day of school the other day, and there, there's orange ticker tape tied all across the chain link fence. It's a very powerful visual I mean, the country is talking about it, um, although like with anything else, and I hate to say it, but it's just a fact like anything else. It, it it starts to fall out of the news cycle, doesn't it? I mean, it was leading the headlines every single night, every single morning uh, for weeks. And I sit there and I wonder if not now, I mean, there's a federal election right now. There's a federal election just a few months after 215 unmarked graves are discovered near Kamloops. I mean, it is just within a few months. If not now, then when? Yeah, I guess that that's the question we're, we're asking as well. And, uh, you know, in saying that, uh, just doing the walk and seeing, uh, you know, Caucasian people, uh, women, you know, crying and applauding uh, our position in addressing the atrocities of the past. You know, uh, they could relate. I'll say that they related to us. And I believe that, you know, when it comes down to, you know, ground zero, I guess, as a, as a human being, the only way that you can really capitalize on uh, relating to what our people went through is basically when you have your own children, young children, like imagine a, a three-year-old and a four-year-old being taken out of your hands and into a total stranger, you know. I don't think anybody would be, be open to that. And uh, at the time, you know, our people under that entered into a treaty, education and healthcare were the two top priorities. So they thought with the that they were going to get educated. And that is where the basically, you know, the the atrocities happened and so much same was in that in those schools that the kids could not communicate to their parents even though when they came back. So uh, with the the voters, I guess, across Canada come September 20th, if there's anything I would like to say, you know, on these campaign trails is where, where and how does your party platform change in order for the significance of addressing the Indigenous issues and the history of the residential schools? Where is that wording in the, in the positioning? Because if it's not there, then I don't think uh, any change will happen. And in saying that, you know, they committed to funding, but now they're on caretaker mode. So nobody can talk or address anything, right? So 
all they can talk about is their parity platform that we will do this, we will do this, you know, but I think in uh, with uh, the significance of those words, if they're on paper and written, then yes, we will believe it. But until then, it's just uh, like a rhetoric rhetoric, I guess you can say. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, this statement is so powerful, again, from Sovereign Nations of, of Treaty 8. I want to read another portion of it. Quote, we continue to feel the pain of the atrocities done to our people under the guise of Canada's legislation, the Indian Act and residential schools. Every day, our people and communities deal with the complex, long lasting effects of intergenerational trauma. We will no longer stand by as the federal government avoids accountability in their role of genocide and the deliberate systemic mass murders of our people. I mean, it's strong wording when you demand concrete action, when you want to see specific wording. I mean, we talk about abolishing the Indian Act, and that's one thing. But when you talk about things like intergenerational trauma or the effects of trauma, I mean, it can manifest itself in different ways. And so can some of the solutions or the funding commitments or what have you. Right. I mean, we can talk about things like affordable housing. We can talk about supports for people who use drugs. We can talk about uh, inner city funding for programs and, and for young learners and for children in schools and education and infrastructure. There are so many different angles that you can approach this through the lens of what we're talking about. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, there, there is uh, an areas that you can uh, address in going forward, I guess. But the, 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 the critical piece for me is like this. Uh, I think I addressed it last time where our, our people, like I keep hearing the comment there, well, it's been uh, 80 to 100 years, you know, get over it. Yeah. And the stories that I uh, came across recently was the one that the, the grandpa, right, talking about uh, – you know, having kids, having grandkids, having great grandkids, and then realizing that he was emotionally unattached to his family. So it's that those are the residual effects that are there. So when we start talking about uh, restitution, what, where are those? Where are those helps? You know, where are those institutions within the Treaty 8 territory that our people can go to, like the public can go to? And uh, just recently, I was in a golf tournament, the fundraiser for first responders. And, you know, I was sharing the stories there. And uh, I can't say the name of the individual that said that, but, you know, like we get so caught up in what, you know, our, our, our job is that we fail to attach our emotional, our emotional being, like our human beingness, I guess, into, uh, into our work. That was a lot of times it's so... We're so, uh, I guess, conformed to the policy and the procedures of what we need to do that we leave our compassion and emotion behind for, for others. And I believe that, you know, to date, when it comes to Indigenous people, that has been the government that's been in Parliament all these years. And, uh, you know, people that uh, cannot relate, you know, to the grassroots issues people that cannot relate to, you know, the suffering and the poverty, they don't understand. So, you know, and I believe, you know, these campaign trails are going to these big centers where there's a whole bunch of voters and they're all publicized. They're on national TV. Maybe some of them should start going to their the first nations reserves, you know, with the, 
the boil water advisories, the dirt roads, the lack of housing, because the residential school system is still in effect under the provincial child welfare policies because they are still moving children out of the homes, out of reserves, because of lack of housing, because of the poverty that's there. So, you know, we need some substantial change that there. And the Indian Act is basically the document, like we addressed the doctrine of discovery last time. It's basically that, that's where the Indian Act derived from. If you're just tuning in, if you're streaming our audio live on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to the uh, Grand Chief Arthur Noski of the Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta. Uh, a, a while ago, I had the honor of speaking uh, with Chief Cadmus DeLorme out of the Cowessus First Nation in Saskatchewan, and they had just recently uh, announced a, an arrangement, a deal, whatever you want to call it, with, with the federal government that essentially provided sovereignty in a sense. Um, I recognize that's a big word uh, with, with regards to the implications but essentially, the Cowessus First Nations is taking over child and family services as a, as a sovereign First Nation. And he was excited about that. People can reference uh, that interview in its entirety, of course. Is that what you envision? I mean, when, when you take a look, I mean, obviously, you'll probably want to speak on behalf of, of, of Treaty 8 First Nations. But your perspective, you know, 10 years from now, let's say five years from now, uh, with regards to sovereignty on things like child and family services, maybe even justice, law enforcement, what have you, community leadership. What does it look like? As you look into the future, what does it look like? Well, I believe the, you know, with the nations from Treaty 8, sovereign nations, we are looking for uh, the child welfare legislation that we create for the well-being of our children, you know, a nurturing and a compassionate caring and basically the availability of education and housing within the, within within that uh, legislation, if, if it needs to go there. Uh, C-92 currently from the federal government, you know, works alongside the, the provincial governments and the wording on it, it has to be compatible to the uh, uh, provincial child welfare acts. And saying that at the provincial child welfare act, basically there's a director there that has a final say on where uh, where the children goes, where the child goes, basically, for instance. So in saying that, we basically, from the First Nations perspective, we would, like I look at it many times as a kukum law, right? You know, of our caring, uh, nurturing elders, it's usually the grandma that always consider it, that are always wise and, you know, like, you know, this, this storm too will pass, but when it comes down to their grandchildren, they're always thinking of the best of it. So the best f future and best current for, for their grandchildren. So in saying that, that final decision, whether a kid is taken out of reserve and pl placed into a different nationality home outside of the community, you know, that that is still the residential school system in its in place. And that is where the, where the uh, Provincial Child Welfare Act is, is still applied to date. It's still in effect. So in saying that our laws, from a sovereign perspective, will be for the best and well-being of that child. It's got to be with staying within and not only our culture, but also 
our nationality as a people. And it's in relation to our connection to the land. Because I'll say this, and I said it time and time again, there is a place that I, I know I am accepted. I know I, uh, I belong, and I know how to get by. And that is basically out on the land. Grand Chief, it's always such an honor to have you uh, available to speak with us and, and to be able to glean your perspective on this. And uh, you, you are certainly a priority interview for us as this federal election approaches. Thanks for your time this morning. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. That's Pleasure. Thank you. Grand Chief Arthur Noski of the Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta. It's, I mean, it's it, it's just the way it's the way that things go. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's cool. It doesn't mean that it makes sense, but our the news cycle is just so unforgiving when it comes to sustained coverage of issues that really matter. I mean, not 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 to take one out of left field, but like, when's the last time anybody talked about violence in the Gaza Strip? When's the last time anybody talked about Israel and Palestine? When's the last time that anybody talked about the IPCC report? on climate change that was like a damning and like red flags waving all over the place. When's the last time people talked about it? the news cycle just churns. I mean, it, but it blows my mind that if we look back to mid to late June into July where people were wrestling, I mean, that was our, as mentioned, that was our Y station question of the week. Like, what are your plans around Canada day? And you'll remember, I mean, that was, I won't say an audience divided. As a matter of fact, to me, I was quite encouraged by the results of that because I don't think mm. that there was a, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to go on there. I don't think that there was a right or wrong answer. I do think it was the wrong answer to be like unabashedly, you know, like painting your face red and white and like rolling around and blasting off fireworks and completely sort of disregarding or disrespecting where the national conversation was at that time. And I didn't begrudge anybody for also recognizing that July 1st has been a significant day in Canada and people have their own feelings on that. And our audience indicated that you indicated that hundreds and hundreds of you chimed in on that. And, and don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was something like 40% intended to celebrate and, and, and 35% kind of felt had, had, you know, feelings like, you know, 20% where it was one of these kind of scenarios, but really, and this is even on us a little bit, mm. It's on us a little bit with regards to the conversations that we've been having with guests as part of our coverage of this federal election campaign. How many questions have I asked our political experts and consultants and strategists and commentators about indigenous issues or issues important to indigenous people in Canada or, or First Nations communities? I fall short a little bit on that one. But isn't that. I like for you to be able to say that and be reflective on that and say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to recommit myself yeah. and we'll make sure that we do that. But also we booked grand chief with the grand chief. Yeah. And so getting, instead of having, you know, white folk <laughs> talk about <laughs> sure. um, what are indigenous issues actually going to the folks to actually, you know, hear their perspective. Um, but I think it's, I mean, you can, I think it's a very valid point. And I say that, yeah, we will recommit ourselves. Yeah. And, and I think it's important. But, you know, bigger picture, the answer is always it's always the same answer. Why isn't a political party doing this? Why aren't politicians? It's always the same answer because it would be politically unpopular 
And I'm sure that in a war room or I'm sure that as as senior strategists and chiefs of staff and, and campaign managers sit around a table and say, should we commit to abolishing the Indian Act? I would imagine it's a pretty quick conversation. Uh, right. I mean, when it comes down to the brass tacks of winning or losing an election. I'm not saying this is my personal opinion that is politically unpopular, so you shouldn't pursue it. But from a political strategy standpoint, just from X's and O's on the whiteboard, the game plan, it's obviously been determined by the teams driving the conservative and liberal and NDP and other campaigns that you're not going to win an election by committing to taking meaningful action on some of these conversations that Canadians and indigenous people in Canada have been having, right? I mean, I think I can say that's a fact because if they did think that it would be politically popular, they'd be doing it. You can let us know what you think about this interview. I didn't see what's going on. I, I, I saw that there a fight broke out on our live chat. And then did you see what happened? They ended up apologizing to each other. These people that I'm pretty sure don't know each other in person. Someone said, I came at you a little heavy. Other audience member says, you don't have to apologize to me. It's all good. I'm like, what is happening in this live chat? It's the nicest hallway in the Internet. It is. the. It's, it's like it, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I saw somebody taking runs at Nancy Pelosi earlier today, which yeah. I, thought, I thought we're not really talking about Nancy Pelosi, are we today? They came in. They <clears> came <throat> and left pretty. That's pretty OK. Quickly. Yeah. Hey, I let you know every once in a while, we, you know, we'll welcome somebody new into that chat that wants to drive some conversation on things that might surprise us just a little bit. But I just want to say my heart was full seeing I got to be I was, I was going to say the word reconciliation. I'm not, you know, no, no pun intended there or, or no reference intended. But, you know, people reconciling with one another and keeping it civil. Thank you for that. It sets the tone for how we want the show to go. We're going to continue a conversation about this 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 mailbox that's been set up at the, the National Cemetery of Canada. It's the Beechwood Cemetery in Ottawa, Ontario, a mailbox at the at the at the grave of Dr. Peter Bryce, who blew the whistle more than 100 years ago, but 115 years ago or so on uh, the state of residential schools in Canada. That's coming up right now, though. It is our pleasure every single Wednesday. Here's a breather from all. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, the real life stuff that we must grapple with and we promise that we'll continue to do so. But every once in a while, we need a break. In partnership with Tourism Jasper every Wednesday, we're so proud to present my Jasper memories. And it's an opportunity for us to Refresh, take a deep breath of that virtual mountain air. And the team at Tourism Jasper does an amazing job of providing us with resources to be able to tell these incredible stories, the rich indigenous history of the land that we know now as Jasper National Park. Some of the movers and shakers, the people that on, on the tourism front or the guiding front that have really made an impact in this part of the world over the past hundred years or so. But I want to get personal today. You know, we took some time off. Uh, Family and I were able to head out to Jasper. I just wanted to share some of my Jasper memories with you to take you through our trip, so to speak. And, 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 And so humor me here as I take you out first to the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. This the famed tea box on 14. It's one of the signature holes of the Stanley Thompson designed course. And I was so lucky and so honored to host Tea Up for Tots. You can see, of course, Stanley Cup champ Andrew Ference was there. An amazing group of people that played the number one rated resort golf course in the country. 
my main man, Moses. Our boxer was there with me for a little bit. He's not supposed to be on the fairway, but every once in a while, we kind of let his paws feel that. I mean, that's some of the best, most manicured fairway in the country. It would feel pretty dang good on those paws. I did keep him out of the sand traps. We kept it classy. We kept it classy. I wanted to share this with you. Can we can, can we we'll roll this video? I'm not going to roll the audio because there's some spicy language from one of the spectators. But but here's Andrew Ference. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you can watch the video. I tweeted it out uh, just a couple of weekends ago. Here he is with the happy Gilmore approach to a drive. This is on 18. This is the tee box on 18. Look at this guy. My friend Sarah Chan saw this and she left a comment. Look at this swing. That is not easy to do. It's at like 280 with the happy Gilmore. He actually hit it onto the other fairway. That's how far he hit it. No, it's not a joke. What's the happy Gilmore? Yeah, the happy Gilmore. So Sarah Chan says, she says, he's good at things that he's not even good at. (laughs) That was the greatest way to characterize his performance on the golf course. I had never been out on a raft. Shame on me. 44 years of age, grew up in this province, and I'd never rafted the Athabasca River. So we spent some time there. An absolutely amazing experience. We watched an osprey fishing, swooping down. I mean, just a beautiful experience. And of course, surrounded by Mount Edith Cavell and Old Man and all the other mountain landmarks that you come to know. The guide, they're just remarkable. I'd also never, I'm embarrassed to say, but I made it right. We made it right. As you can see by the photo there, we finally got our butts out to Spirit Island on Moline Lake. Took the boat out there, the, the Moline Lake boat tour. I would recommend it to anybody. Such a wonderful way to spend a couple of hours. What a stunning scenario. They call that the Hall of the Gods. These, these like cathedral of mountains. And, and we learned the guide did such a remarkable job. She's talking about the indigenous history of why Spirit Island is considered to be so sacred. You know, you're, you can't tread on it. You can't walk on Spirit Island. You, you respect it as a sacred place for ceremony. And, and indigenous people have recently started returning after somewhat of a, I mean, it's a difficult history. The story of Canada's national parks, you know, warts and all. And uh, I was so grateful that our guide took that head on. And in our boat, there was a wonderful conversation. She was taking questions from these five and six and seven year old kids. They were asking questions about why First Nations had not been in the area for a while and what it meant for them to return. And I just thought it was such an amazing learning opportunity. These people, just this captive audience on this boat. I never met the guide before and I was proud of her. And then there's the food. I wanted to show, I know that, you know, here's Jasper Brewing Company. Don't worry, the six-year-old didn't actually get into the pint, but Wyatt's eyes were wide. His mom and I are both very well aware we have our hands full eight to ten years from now. We know that. Had a chance to check out at the Pine Bungalows. There's this new restaurant called Kumama. Uh, that's duck that I had there. And it's uh, this it might be the best restaurant in Jasper. Kumama had an unbelievable dining experience there. We checked out the Maline Lake Wilderness Kitchen. I finally got out there. Their baked onion soup is the Jasper recommendation for the day. And then, of course, Evil Dave's, the Jasper Institution. Sam, your two thumbs up on Evil Dave's? Oh, you got to stop at Evil Dave's. You know, they're, they're in their new location now. Hey, they moved. They shut down for a while. They moved across town. And they've got this beautiful new location. We had a wonderful experience. They're all in a, an amazing opportunity to recharge our batteries, to refresh. If you want to see those photos, you, of course, you can follow me on Instagram at Ryan Jesperson. I hashtagged my Jasper, which is what we invite you to do as well. We want to see your photos. We want to see your videos. Hashtag my Jasper and Real Talk RJ. And of course, if you want to learn more about 
Jasper. We're so proud to partner with him. You can check him out online. It's jasper.travel slash real talk. You can see some of our past features, learn more about what probably is. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say probably because you should always have an asterisk on these, but I think it's the most beautiful part of the country. That's what I think. And of course, this is presented each and every week by our friends at Tourism Jasper. Well, we spoke about Dr. Peter Bryce uh, on the show. His name has popped up several times as we've been having these conversations about reconciliation. Very difficult conversations, obviously, based on, I will say, recent revelations about residential schools. So I always want to pick my words carefully because, you know, elders, uh, residential school survivors have been telling these stories and trying to get Canadians attention for decades. How many of us knew the name Dr. Peter Bryce two years ago. It was uh, in 1907 that Dr. Bryce released a report on the treatment of indigenous children and the appalling conditions at residential schools across Canada. And now, in honor of the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, Orange Shirt Day on September 30th, the National Cemetery of Canada, it's the Beechwood Cemetery in Ottawa, is inviting People to share letters of reconciliation, actual physical written letters to be mailed that will arrive at a mailbox that sits at the grave of Dr. Peter Bryce. Nick McCarthy, kind enough to join us from Beechwood Cemetery this morning. Nick, welcome to Real Talk and thanks for making time for us today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity. I'm just going to center myself properly now. No problem. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity for connecting this is a really neat initiative can, can you give us the backstory on how this came about so it happened kind of organically right when we're talking about peter henderson bryce i realize i'm not centered um he's somebody who's sorry about that don't worry about he's it we'll somebody, get you centered here we go um he's somebody who's um this figure that was forgotten right and we've noticed we have a lot of events indigenous related events at beachwood where uh, he's the focal point and what happens is uh, we've noticed that people leave messages leave stones leave uh pieces of art and um, as you would imagine it rains so we decided that maybe it's time that uh, somebody who's been passed away for almost 100 years uh gets a mailbox to be able to protect his his mail This so, have, have you started have you started receiving letters already? So we've I've emptied it about three times already. And then we're receiving letters in the mail as well uh, that go directly to our office. So I get them in my pigeon box. But what we did is uh, we're hoping to publish um, kind of a book, right? There is a series of bo- history books uh, written by this gentleman called Broad uh, Broadfoot. And Broadfoot wrote a whole bunch of hi- the history of like the West. And it was through conversations with people. Um, and it was essentially just he was explaining the conversation in his book. So we're really hoping to be able to publish uh, these letters with permission from the family, of course. Um, we're hoping to publish these letters and produce a book so that Canadians can see it and understand the impact of somebody who was essentially forgotten in history. And that's when we talk about reconciliation. We're not talking about uh, sort of destroying Canada's history. We're talking about adding that aspect to history that we've forgotten about. Yeah, the whole idea about destroying or erasing history, that actually, quite frankly, drives me absolutely crazy, those conversations, because it's not something that happens. And I think it's a misinterpretation of the entire exercise. Yeah. But can, can you take can you take us into I mean, I would imagine you you have the opportunity to, to literally open these envelopes and to read these letters. What types um, of things are people saying? 
So uh, some of the messages are messages of thank you, right? It's or why weren't people connecting with this report? Why weren't people actually understanding what happened, right? So when we look at Bryce, right, he releases a report in 1907 to somebody that he knew. And he knew Duncan Campbell Scott personally. They went to church together. And so we have a lot of people that are sort of questioning that. How can sort of the good intentions of people uh, not have seen this issue? And we have a lot of people who would have lost a lot of um, non-Indigenous Canadians would have lost children in the same type of manner, right? The same type of diseases. And so a lot of the letters are reflective of that. We have letters from Indigenous community that are saying thank you. And it's great that we're finally sort of accepting uh, what Bryce wrote about 110 years ago, right? So I think that's that's the real message that we're getting. We're getting this idea that people are sharing their thoughts and sharing their hopes and sharing the fact that uh, people are excited for uh, to move forward and have these conversations. Isn't it? Uh, I don't have anything profound to offer here, Nick. This is this is this is a general observation. But you just I mean, one of the reasons why I think that this is is so uh, impressive and so encouraging and so important. You can imagine, you know, this Dr. Bryce writing this report in 1907. And uh, it it really is a remarkable report. And he paid for it, didn't he? I mean, I'll ask you to sort of provide us with some history, but he paid for it. And well, I just wanted to say, in, 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 so he releases this report in 1907. Residential schools continue to operate in Canada into the 1990s, like 80 plus yeah. years after that. And, and, I, and, and you just wonder, I mean, you just wonder what, what it may mean or have meant to him to know that, you know, 114 years later, that Canadians en masse, thousands of people, I would expect, ultimately, are going to be writing these letters and talking about the impact of his work and the impact of the courage that he showed and the and the plain language that he expressed about his yeah. very real concerns here. But it took more than a century. Well, I think the problem is that um, when you look at the history of residential schools, and this is something that we're having this dialogue quite a bit at Beachwood, you can imagine being in Ottawa, we have a lot of politicians buried in our cemetery, right? And especially a lot of the leader, the early leaders of Canadian history. So when we look at these politicians, we can sort of ascertain what they've done. And somebody like Duncan Campbell Scott, he coined that uh, he actually wanted to see a full genocide of Indigenous people, right? He's the one who really sort of looked to assimilate but also get rid of the indigenous problem of course he used uh, more specific words but when we're talking about him we're also talking about somebody who lost his own daughter uh, to the same type of disease overseas so he sends his own daughter so where's that connection that people could have with their own lives to what's going on with indigenous people but when we talk specifically about bryce what makes him so interesting is in 1907 he releases the support hands it to duncan campbell scott they went to church together they were in the same congregation like three benches apart from each other right both same background same education uh granted dr uh, peter henderson bryce was kind of slightly more educated because he was a doctor uh, but once he released that report, he got sent into fisheries. And you can imagine fisheries in Ottawa is not a big portfolio in 1907. And we don't have a lot of open sea, as you would imagine. But the uh, he got sent to that. And then eventually he releases a report with his own money, publishes it with a publishing house. It gets released. It gets a lot of play. But the government then buries him. And they kick him out of the public service, and he's essentially left uh, alone and destitute, loses his son, who was also a doctor, uh, 
who also died in uh, residential schools as part of his work within residential schools. So had they applied the, the recommendations that Peter Henderson Bryce did, his son wouldn't have succumbed to the same diseases that would have killed wow. the indigenous children. I didn't know that about his son. Hey, there's a lot I don't know, though, uh, Nick, but, which is why I think these are so important. But I think just that, right? I think it's just we were never taught, right? It's not something that we were explained. Like, um, you were talking about residential schools going on into the 90s. I was in school, and in my and members of the Indigenous community were in residential schools at the same time as I was in grade school. So it's like we we haven't learned that history yet because it was never shared um, in French can in French Canada or French Canadian uh, uh, schooling. You have uh, Marguerite Bourgeois, who was the nun that gave the indigenous children candy in order to get them uh, to come to school every day. And that's the story of the residential school done through the the lens of the Catholic Church, right? This happy nun sharing candy and the the little indigenous children coming willingly, but it wasn't really willing at all. And so it's that sanitization that we were taught that we're starting to, to eliminate, right? We're starting to see that what the true stories are. And to say that somebody like Peter Henderson Bryce has been saying it, he's been saying it for 100 years, just no one's been open up to open um, enough to listen. Yeah, Nick, to keep it real, though, we're still seeing some of that sanitization. We're still seeing some of the justification. 100%. I mean, we're still seeing comments. We, we played video on this show just about a month ago uh, from, from a, a, a Catholic, I don't know if he's a priest or a bishop or whatever he was, but in yeah. the province of Alberta, standing up at the pulpit and calling essentially, essentially calling residential s- school survivors liars, uh, that were saying what they were saying for money. Uh, we hear people saying they weren't all bad. There were people that meant well, I mean, all that, I mean, yeah. it's, it's still happening to this day. Yeah. And I think when you look at the legacy of the residential school, right, we, we partnered with this group called seven generations, assembly of seven generations, and it is seven generations of res- residential schools. You have, you have the residential school system, then you have the 60s scoop, and now you have the millennial scoop. And it's all the product of the same institutional racism or the same institutional uh, government supremacy over ind- indigenous uh, people, we have to sort of take a look at how we treat Indigenous people on a regular basis from a policy level, right? You were talking about the Indian Act and the importance of abolishing it, and I think there's a there's a discussion there that needs to happen, and somebody has to be courageous enough to say, "Wait a minute, it's time to actually have this conversation." So you're inviting people to write these letters of reconciliation, yeah, talking about why reconciliation matters to them. Obviously, these are going to be very personal expressions or I mean, mean, they'll vary, won't they? That's the beauty of it. You know, what have you learned about residential schools? What's your personal commitment to truth and reconciliation? Uh, Let's put the information up so so people can send these. You can you can address your letter to Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce to Dr. Peter Bryce care of Beechwood Cemetery. It's at 280 Beechwood Avenue. In Ottawa, Ontario, and the postal code there, K1L8A6, but care of Beechwood Cemetery, 280 Beechwood Avenue in Ottawa, Ontario. Obviously, I'm imagining you'd like to see them arrive before September 30th. Um, ideally, right. Um, on September 30th, we've closed down the cemetery, right? As a company, we think it's important to have a, a commitment towards reconciliation. So we're hoping to have, I would love to sort of see massive bags full of letters ready to sort of peruse and sort of share. Um so as I said, we've, we've had quite a bit of letters so far, but I think it's when people are thinking about reconciliation, it's how can they live it in their lives? How can they connect with it in a meaningful way? And I think this is a simple way to do it and have that reflection and to write an old fashioned letter because we're all emails and uh, social media and I'm from the age of social media. So I've written maybe three letters in my life. Um, 
But uh, when we ask people to write letters, it's taking that time and having that reflection and see how it, in, it influences you, but what your own personal commitment. And it can be just something as simple as just accepting the truth of it all, right? And you, you mentioned the, the Catholic priest and at the pulpit, and it's something that people need to hear, and it's something people that need to accept as a truth. Um, you, may, you may not agree with it, but it's their experience, and the Indigenous community has proven time and time again that um, their cries have gone unheard. Yeah, we just had a conversation with Treaty 8 Grand Chief Arthur Noski about that exact thing. Um, Nick, this is a really neat initiative. Is this, by the way, is this the first time that there's ever been this sort of initiative, like with regards to mailboxes at, at prominent grave sites? So to my knowledge, there's never been a, um, a letterbox put on a headstone before. Huh. So I think this is a first. And hey, if we're going to celebrate Dr. Peter Anderson Bryce, I think what a great way and what a great way to start a mailbox program yeah. uh, for those who have passed away. Is it going to stay there? Is the mailbox, is that like a permanent installation or no? Uh, I think it's going to end up being a permanent installation. Yeah. Uh, we have a partner, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, and sort of she keeps adding stuff to uh, the grave. And um, I think it's a great way for people just to connect. There's a couple plaques around, too, that people can learn about the legacy of Peter Henderson Bryce, as well as um, take one of our many tours. Um, so it's one of those things. And it's about um, just being honest, right, and being open to this new information. Nick McCarthy, um out of Beechwood Cemetery in Ottawa, Ontario. It's the National Cemetery of Canada, 280 Beechwood Avenue in Ottawa. Thanks for making time for us. This is a really neat story. Appreciate it. So thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I'm going to commit to writing a letter. I'm going to do it. And, and not just to try to make it into the book, but I feel like it's it's important to put things down on paper. You know, this is like just an aside. This is a pointless and pithy little detail, but... Have you ever sat down to write a letter recently? I don't know about the two of you, but, you know, muscle memory and our hands are conditioned to type or text. It's actually exhausting. It's physically exhausting to write a full page. Have you actually like I don't have the muscle there anymore. Did Remember you know back in the day, like back, like, you know, he says he grew up in the digital age. He says he's written three letters in his life. I cannot relate to that because I used to be a big time letter writer. My family, we used to have a tradition on Fridays. It was called Others First. And my parents would bring out these, um, you know, these like little sort of rubber. My mom was always extremely well organized here. And you'd have like cards and stationery and letters and stamps and markers and pens and pencils. And we started at a very young age writing notes of appreciation to people, whether it was neighbors or people halfway around the world or, or, or what have you. And that was a tradition that kind of extended. My cousin Andrew, they moved to Malaysia in our grade 12 year. And Andrew and I used to handwrite each other letters because there was no such thing as email kids in those days. But there was nothing like going to the mailbox and getting a letter. Big deal. Still is. I love getting mail. and I Handwritten love, mails. Yeah, postcards, anything. The, the wild thing is, is kids are not learning cursive anymore. So they're not actually learning how to handwrite. It's not, it's not yeah. part of lessons anymore. Do they need to? You you don't look convinced, Sam, that kids need to learn cursive. I've I've actually I've had this debate with my better half, Kelly, a couple of times. Because um, I was very firmly in the counter, just like cursive isn't really a useful skill anymore. And she's like, "Well, people need to learn to read cursive to be able to mm -hmm. interpret historical documents. Like Ooh, we need that skill at least baked into our psyche." In order to understand mm. history. And I was like, oh, that's that. I did not think of that. Yeah, I I wrote uh, my, one of my nephews a card and. You know, I just kind of switched back and forth between cursive and, and printing, and he couldn't read it. Could not read it. He was like, what is this? I'm like, 
that's that's handwriting. Although if I had to write, sit down right now, I mean, I could handwrite. I still would have the the skill. I, I'd have the ability to do it. But the, I don't remember. I mean, I it's so, it's so I much rem- faster. Though. I remember, but not for me. Printing is like you have to do each letter individually. Yeah. Whereas cursive. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm also the son of a doctor. Doctors have famously. Right. Who if, cares? If, if my dad works really hard, he can actually have really nice penmanship. But I've seen like scripts. They call them like the prescription sheets and things. They're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> These doctors. Oh, my goodness. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if actually I'm going to consider this uh, in many areas. I'm in the gray. I don't believe this is an issue of black and white. The importance of cursive. I'm also not a curriculum developer, nor am I an educator. Uh. I don't know if I believe that cursive is an important skill or not. Kelly's point is a really interesting one. Interpreting or reading historical documents, although how many like not to take away from it, because it is a good point. But how many times have you had to do that or how many times have you actually done that? Not often. Not often. And I mean, historians, I'm sure, would beg to differ on that one. And and like to be fair, interpreting. I mean, if you're a researcher, if you're a historian, if you're somebody that is, is always immersed in, in trying to understand the past, it's probably a much more useful skill to you than for, you know, someone like me that scribbles down notes during a talk show and yeah. mostly types. Yeah, exactly. I remember. I mean, I don't remember the exact day or the moment, but making a transition off when it became because the school I attended, my elementary and junior high school was a pretty strict school. And and I think transitioning from cursive into block printing, which is how I, I print with all capital letters. Um, I remember that being somewhat of a controversial move. You're such a rebel. I, I was a rebel. You're wild. I got sent to the office once for not wearing socks. You're wild, Jesperson. Was, they, they were like, you know, they're like all of a sudden all the kids are going to think it's OK to not wear socks. Had to take a letter home, get it signed by my parents that I had shown up without socks on. I'll throw one more at you. In engineering school, you have to learn how to do perfect block type, all caps, because you have to be able to write blueprints. So there is penmanship courses that you have to take in engineering. I'm not actually surprised at that because blueprints, they, they, they're when they're done. They're beautiful. They're actually they're, beautiful. Yeah. Handwritten blueprints are immaculate. Like, uh, yeah, architects, engineers, they're actually immaculate. You're right, Sam. That's such a great point. On online, people are saying, you know, it's uh, Michelle says it's great for fine motor control, learning cursive, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, everybody's talking about hybrids. You know, um, some random guy says, to be fair, I can't even read my own printing. Um, Kitty jerk face, which is one of the better handles we see. Kitty jerk face. I mean, self-assigned. We didn't assign that name. Kitty Jerkface does a hybrid. Chad says my writing's a hybrid, but I love cursive. Miranda wonders, well, how are people going to sign the back of their credit card or their bank card or anything to sign? I mean, is your signature cursive? Not really. Signature. Well, I guess maybe it is in a way. Mine's just a stylized swoop. Yeah. (laughs) The stylized swoop. That's a great band name. Stylized swoop. Or a chatterbox handle. Yeah. Uh, Tracy says, I do not know an elementary school child who is not learning cursive. In other words, they're still teaching it. Miranda says her daughter learned in grade five. Oh, James. Now, here's an example. James says it's been several years since I hand wrote a condolence letter uh, to a former head of a charity I was in charge of. And it took me forever, but he truly appreciated it. Like, so if you want to kind of class it up and write cursive, I mean, you think back in the day, my grandma Doris she had pen pals for more than 70 years. Like, not like, oh, she had a whole bunch of pen pals over seven years. No, she kept in touch with the same people in some circumstances. And they like would, would meet in person. I think if I remember correctly, one of them lived in Australia, I think. 
I wish I could remember more. But she would show me these letters that she kept through the years. And the that previous generation, the the penmanship was stunning, like immaculate. And that would even I mean, I loved seeing my grandparents handwriting. I now keep little notes. I have a note in my toolbox. You would appreciate this. I have a note in my toolbox attached to a tiny little screwdriver. And it's my grandma's handwriting saying and it just says this screwdriver is to tighten eyeglass frames. But it's handwritten in my grandma's handwriting. So I will keep it until the day I die. Someone's penmanship, someone's handwriting, especially when it when, when you find a note or you're not expecting to. Boy, does that really resonate, right? I love this. People are chiming in on this. This is like the most engaged the audience has been. Escher says, I'm jealous of modern kids. I hated learning cursive in school, but at the same time, I'm glad that I did. Fatima wonders if cursive classes will be replaced with courses on emojis. Maybe. <laughs> That's it's, not totally lot, like out there. It's it's how like when I'm cutting to the chase on texting somebody back and I want to like let them know my initial like response and What's respond up? quick. Couple yeah. emojis. Right. Like the three fires or the two fist pounds or like the smiling face with the sunglasses on it. <laughs> Mine is the teeth where it's like, yeah, that's one of my faves. That's a misinterpreted one or an oft misinterpreted one. Yeah. Because I've always thought it's like same as you. Yeah. Like a little bit. Oh, my gosh. Sorry yeah. about that. I forgot to send you this. But some people perceive that as angry. I sent it to a buddy. He was. Yeah. He's like, why so mad, bro? I was like, mad. Mad is the red. See, this is why you need the class. Yes. This is why you need the class. James says he's been ke- he's kept all his handwritten notes from his dad who's been gone for 20 years. James absolutely treasure those. As you know, Mike says, try reading your Italian grandmother's writing in the recipe book. It makes you work for that pasta sauce. <laughs> I love this. I love it. Thanks, everybody. Hey, I've got a really good news story to share from our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. I asked for their permission to share this number and they said, all right, you know, for the month of August, we reminded you that every child matters and every cone counts at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens and Baseline Road. All six of those locations had agreed to take a dollar from the sale of every ice cream cone through the month of August and donate it to the Wakutuin Society that's doing amazing work, empowering women that are survivors of both residential schools and cancer, if you can imagine. Get this, Real Talkers. You showed up en masse to the Dairy Queens in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park through the month of August, meaning these six Dairy Queens raised a total of $22,778. That's right. You bought almost 23,000 ice cream cones in the month of August at these six Dairy Queens. They're so thrilled to be presenting that check to an organization doing such important work. And I could not be more proud of Mark and Michelle and Michael and the ownership group of those six Dairy Queens. I'm going to be there at the check presentation at the Newcastle Dairy Queen coming up on September 18th. If you want to hang out with us there at 11 o'clock, we'll crush a few dilly bars and talk about, I mean, you know what I love about this is that, yeah, it's it's Dairy Queen and, and Dairy Queen. People have fun at Dairy Queen. People love Dairy Queen. Doesn't mean we can't have serious and meaningful conversations. Doesn't mean we can't impact change. Doesn't mean that we can't support community members. And I absolutely love what they did there. So a huge shout out to the teams at Dairy Queen there. We're really proud to partner with you. And again, we'll see you there on September 18th. 
The teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, it was my pleasure to swing by the dealership in St. Albert yesterday. It's still pretty much brand. It still has that new dealership smell. Hey, you know what I'm talking about. You want to get a new dealership, new dealership smell. Well, they've got the new Rams in there. They've got the new Jeep Grand Cherokee L in there. That's the one with the third row of seating. It's brand new this year. It is beautiful. I said to Brad, the GM, so you're going to get me in one of those brand new Grand Cherokees? He's like, buddy, we can't keep them on the floor. Everybody wants these Grand Cherokees. You're not getting one of these ones. If you want to see it, though, if you want to talk about getting your hands on the most trusted SUV brand since 1941, you know where to find them in Sherwood Park, in St. Albert at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep, and of course, online under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers. I, I was telling you about those Hatch Chilies that they had in a while ago. Absolutely stunning. They elevated our last barbecue. You throw them on the grill. They're like bell peppers from Hatch, New Mexico. They're not super hot. Really beautiful on salads. People are putting them in their sandwiches with that famous Friesen Brothers sourdough. This is just one other way that Friesen Brothers is elevating the culinary experience. And of course, they're big on supporting local too. They've built their brand on Alberta grown, Alberta owned for more than 65 years in 16 communities, including that beautiful brand new store in South Edmonton. When you're there, let them know you heard about them on Real Talk. Again, you can find out more at Friesen.com. Now, I promised that we'd be reading some of your emails today. You send these to us to talk at ryanjesperson.com, and we always appreciate hearing from you. Jaylene was in touch, and she said, I live in McKenzie County. Uh, said it's easily located. Just look for the big gray square in the top left-hand corner on the government's vaccine rate map. Vaccine uptake here has been abysmally low, and misinformation is high. Says the premier, Jason Kenney, visited a town in our county back on August 10th and 11th for their annual rodeo. And an acquaintance of mine attended that rodeo and said that the premier was walking around apologizing to business owners for restrictions and and forced closures when businesses, quite frankly, just weren't observing them, weren't abiding by them. And he was promising that this government would not bring in any more restrictions. Now, since then, he's obviously brought back weak restrictions, but in this context, they seem to make sense. A mask mandate. But what about schools? No mask mandate there. What about worship services receiving these exemptions? And what about bars closing at 10 p.m., says Jaylene? These would not have an impact on our extremely religious community with no such establishments. But I'll tell you, she says, the base is mad. Those with power and influence have said that Jason Kenney will not be reelectable in this region nor across the province. And it's extremely worrisome because it's clear that the premier will wait until schools, businesses and most importantly, healthcare services are pushed to the brink before he does anything meaningful. It's like what we were talking about yesterday in my opening monologue about this maddening trend where people have to absolutely lose their minds before the government will listen Jaylene says, I think it's important that people know about this political fuckery, especially that the premier was already making promises to people in an attempt to regain their votes while the fourth wave was clearly ramping up and alarm bells were sounding that from Jaylene. We got this one from Ben. Ben plays drums is his handle, says I'm a musician and I recently played a gig at the Pinocchio Stampede, says I'm a veteran musician and i've never been so uncomfortable at a gig in my life there were a few hundred people in the venue unmasked uh, with no social distancing a couple of big shutter doors open for airflow but that was about it ben says no i'm double vaxxed 
But still, mostly I stayed backstage with the band. We're all vaccinated. But when I masked up to walk across the room to grab a beer, I've never received so many dirty looks in my life just for wearing a mask. Ben says the bartender didn't even really acknowledge me when I tried to place my order. Somebody actually confronted me in the bathroom about my mask, but I just went about washing my hands and left. Way to wash your hands, Ben. Way to go, bud. You know, most guys don't wash their hands after using them. I know, Sarah, you hate to hear it, but it's true. That's been one of the real positive Ben's like, can you please get back to my email? Um, uh, Hand sanitizer everywhere has been a very positive development since the pandemic because guys are hardwired. I know it's gross and I know that girls think this is disgusting, but gross guys is like gr- grossly understating how gross it well, is. Well, gross is pretty gross, but I'm just saying the good news here, the silver lining is that hand sanitizer absolutely everywhere. I think is having a positive impact because I think more guys pump the hand sanitizer than ever before. Sam, you look cynical. Now I, 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 know, I, don't know, if I know you to be a guy that washes his hands though. Let's, well, I mean, that that's just Most it. It's times. like, <laughs> first of all, the bathrooms here have really nice smelling soap. So I'm just Fabulous pointing that out. So I'm like, I'm a big fan of the soap in our building. <laughs> Me too. Uh, <laughs> but it's also like, I it just, I am hardwired to always wash my hands. Like that's, that was beaten into me. Not literally like since I've been two. But so not I everybody, you know, yeah. as well as I do, rock concerts, hockey games, people are trying to because because you, you, there's the big long lineups. And so you can only grab a beer or go pee. If you're a master of 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 of, of scheduling, you can oftentimes get a beer and fit in a pee in the same intermission. If you're but a- sometimes that precludes people from taking the time to wash their hands. That is just a fact. They go on to use the pin pads at the ATM machines. They go on to touch door handles and doorknobs. I'm not trying to gross everybody out. This is just real talk it's just really funny because when you think of like have you looked at the lineup for the women's washroom because there's you don't even you miss you don't get to the beer lineup you miss half of the or part of the show so cry me a river i'm not crying (laughs) i'm just telling you a fact whether you like it or not most guys don't wash their hands but ben does and he says you know what musicians are out there risking their lives for a few hundred bucks just so we can enjoy ourselves and bring some enjoyment to other people's lives. And this is what we get in return. Berated in bathrooms for wearing masks, chirped at. He says, I don't know what to get from telling you the story, Jespo, except for that it's bad all over. That from Ben Plays Drums. Thanks for that, pal. I appreciate it. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Before we go, I wanted to give you a heads up that we have. Right now, a new blog post up at granddog.ca for all the dog lovers here among the Real Talk community. Enough kibble. It was time to go raw. You can read the blog post at granddog.ca about one family's, look at that beautiful boxer puppy, one family's journey from kibble to raw, why they did it. You can tap into a whole bunch of great resources there or talk to one of their talented staff members nutritionists on staff with grand dog they can explain to you why so many people are putting their dogs on that raw diet they deliver to your door in calgary edmonton and red deer on a weekly basis and if you use the promo code real talk they'll take 10 percent off your first time order at granddog.ca also big shout out to our friends at kubi energy of course you know kubi in the game of sustainable green energy net zero is the goal And they're operating, of course, in Western Canada, 
most notably out of their Kamloops and Edmonton offices with Tesla certified installers finding solutions for people living right in the city centers or people way off the grid. They're experts in implementation and with technology changing, advancing and the price coming down, there's never been a better time to get in touch with the team at Kubi Energy at kubienergy.ca. Coming up tomorrow, our election coverage will continue. A conversation with Sherelle Evelyn uh, from the Hill Times. And I am so, so excited to check in with Paralympian Caitlin Wright. She'll be our guest on tomorrow's edition of Real Talk. In the meantime, make it a great Wednesday, friends. One love. We'll talk to you soon. Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.